I wouldn't even say we put constraints on it. It was just like, let's build this business. Let's keep it simple. Let's build these processes and systems. Over time, right, after I read, you know, kind of Naval's like how to get rich without getting lucky tweet storm, um, I read your book. Then I started realizing more of these different forms of leverage, right? I mean, that's probably one of the reasons I got active on Twitter. As we built these things into the business, I've realized like, oh, this is leverage, right? This isn't just processes and freeing up your time. Like this is leverage. Hello again, my friends, and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen, and this is a podcast. This show explores technology, investing, entrepreneurship, and personal growth that will help you and the rest of humanity create a brighter, more abundant future. This is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. Today, my guest is Rohan Jahar, the founder of JT Capital. This is a real estate private equity firm that has purchased over $500 million of apartment buildings, uh, which is over 3,000 units, mostly in Austin, Texas, and some in Florida as well. Prior to starting JT, Rohan worked in finance and strategy at Facebook, as well as GE. And after a few years in tech, he explored what was next, apprenticed, adventured, and then started his own real estate private equity firm. We go real deep on the operations of that firm, how Rohan built and his and his team, he has he had help, uh, built an incredibly high leverage firm. They use EA delegation, virtual assistants, automation tools. They've all become integral to his business and his life and are a key piece of, I think, what makes his firm special, especially in real estate. Uh, he's got a bunch of great stories and tips for us about how to build leverage and apply it. And we learn a ton about the real estate industry and leverage in this interview. I had a great time. Uh, Rohan's a super nice guy. I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you would like to put some more of your money to work, you can invest alongside me and my partners in today's great founders building early stage tech companies. This year, I started an early stage investment fund called Rolling Fund with two of my most talented and trusted friends. We've all been angel investing for years, started sharing deals, funded a few billion dollar companies along the way. And this fund lets us invest your money alongside ours into some of these companies as well. We are seeking out the most promising founders of early stage tech companies around the world. Uh, and if you love these ideas, these conversations, these lessons, You'll enjoy the companies that we invest in and I think enjoy being along for the ride and learning with us as we build a fund, learn more about these companies and technologies that we encounter in, in our in our rolling fund travels. We've got podcast episodes with Bo and Al. Uh, you can learn more about rolling fund and get a feel for the other partners of the fund there. I'm honored that many readers and listeners have already joined the fund as co-investors and you can go to rolling.fun to learn more. It's linked in the show notes below. Accredited investors can invest with us through AngelList today. If you have questions or you'd like to hear more, please reach out. As this conversation is all about leverage, I think it is worth mentioning again, Athena, uh, one of the biggest jumps of leverage in my life was working with an EA, an executive assistant. We talk a lot about them in this conversation. Virtual assistants or executive assistants are some of the best ways to buy back your time and your freedom and edge closer to the life that you want to live. Ivan is my executive assistant through Athena. We have a wonderful relationship. He helps me gracefully handle a very full life personally and professionally. 
He's contributed to managing rental properties, which is something we're going to talk about today. He's helped plan my wedding. He has run multiple businesses and a lot more. He publishes every single episode of this podcast. It could not exist without his help. And Athena made all of this possible. They hire, train, and match you with a full-time EA based in the Philippines. Then they provide guidance and accountability to both you and your EA to be sure that you are successful together. I love that the team at Athena obsesses over how to best create leverage for their clients. I think two pieces of the secret sauce that they have are they only do full-time dedicated EAs, uh, 160 hours a month, one-on-one -on -one relationships, and all EAs are based in the Philippines. I recently went and spent a week in the Philippines with hundreds of EAs and the Athena executives. I saw training sessions for really high value skills like data analysis, creative problem solving. There are EAs sharing processes and playbooks for booking epic vacations or remotely managing kitchens. I even met EAs who were remote general managers of small businesses. You'll get a taste of this in the conversation today, just some of the incredible processes uh, and systems that EAs and VAs are capable of. You know I love a good form of leverage. This is one I personally use, enjoy, and stand behind. Getting a dedicated full-time helper was easier than I ever thought it could be. So open your browser, type in athenago.com and sign up. There's often a wait list to get matched with an EA. So plan ahead, sign up now today. There's no commitment required and you will learn something just by going through their quick application. So to learn more about how to use an EA, the playbooks the expert use, and investing in the corporation of you. Uh, my episode with Athena's CEO and COO is episode number 38. It's overflowing with valuable ideas. It's very similar to this episode in terms of focus on operations and really getting detail oriented about things that can get delegated, automated, and outsourced. Once more, athenago.com. Appreciate you listing me, Eric Jorgensen, as your refer. Now let's get to the good stuff and see what Rohan can teach us about automation, delegation, and operations in multifamily real estate. I've, I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. I feel like uh, I've uh, followed you and enjoyed your, at least your Twitter self, which I know is not entirely a person, but your Twitter self for a very long time. And then we met at Capitol Camp and I realized, we both realized it was like incredible excitement that we went to Michigan State at the exact same time. And I think also lived in San Francisco at the exact same time. What years were you in San Francisco? I was there from 2014 to maybe 2020. Oh yeah. Okay. So we definitely overlapped for a few years in there too. Yeah. Yeah. But that was crazy that we had realized the other week that we went to Michigan state at the same time. We pretty much lived like in the same area and probably passed by each other like every week and did not know each other. And then, you know, a decade later, uh, here we are. <laughs> and, and you studied business too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was a okay. finance major. Okay. We were probably in some of the same classes, honestly, like. Yep. Definitely. Wild. And that's like that we were talking about it. That's crazy, right? Like the power of Twitter is that you can meet your people, your tribe, regardless of wherever they're living around the world. Then you meet up in person at an event or, or wherever it might be. And you like already know each other. And that we didn't have that run in 10 years ago, but we probably would have been friends 10 years ago. Uh, totally. It took a decade for that to be realized. And it came through Twitter, which is pretty phenomenal. It's amazing. Yeah, I feel like I'm 10 years late in getting to know you, but we're making up for lost time. <laughs> right. So I'm looking forward to this. I feel like I have so much to learn from you because you are we, we kind of it, this is interesting to me because we started in such similar places. We both grew up in Michigan. Where'd you grow up in Michigan? Uh, Rochester. 
Okay. Is it a suburb of Detroit, right? Yeah. Like 30 to 40 minutes outside of Detroit. Okay. Yeah. Basically same. We went to the same college. We both got into tech like circa whatever that time frame, and then ended up kind of like dovetailing into totally different directions, but interested in a ton of the same stuff. So I'm really I'm excited to get like, have you teach me everything about multifamily real estate? And I know you are very, very thoughtful about delegation automation and like how you guys run your business in an extremely high leverage way. So I'm excited to get into both of those, but I want to start with my favorite opening question, which is who are your heroes? Yeah, good question. I think for me that I kind of pick characteristics of certain people I like, and that's what I really admire about those people, right? So, you know, there's a really well-known names of people that are changing the world today, but I won't get too much into those. I think my overall heroes, people I look at, and I'm like, I love the body of work of the life that they've created. I love what they're doing in business and uh, giving back and growing and raising families and building strong relationships. It's really just the people that are closest to me um, that I admire, which is, you know, my dad, uh, my brother, and my grandfather who passed away now. But those are the people really that I admire. You know, my dad had made a lot of sacrifices to help raise me and my brother's kids, sacrificing certain things through his job and stuff like that, and really just raised, you know, me very well as well as my brother. My grandfather, born in a village in India, and wasn't a very good student through a variety of things, ultimately became uh, like the CFO of a, of a company in India. And then my brother, who's about six and a half years younger than me, has taken you know risks much earlier on in his life than when I did, when I was just more mm. comfortable like working a job and stuff, and is a very thoughtful person. And so you know those are the kind of people that I truly admire because I see them up close every day, and I, uh, those are kind of my personal heroes. I don't think you're behind the curve at all on risk taking. <laughs> I've heard yeah. like there's not a lot of people running a real estate firm your size or your age. I wouldn't think. What does your brother? What does your brother do? Is he extra crazy? Not crazy. He runs uh, this business. It's called Jahar Academy. Pretty much what he does is like Lambda School for people that want to get into sales. But he just doesn't do it at a venture back scale. He does it more at a one to one basis and does the income sharing agreements. So it's super interesting. When he was graduating from Michigan State, he went to, you know, he did all these internships during college to try to go into Wall Street and stuff like that. Between his junior and senior year, he came out to San Francisco. It was me, my cousin, and my brother, Samir. And we were talking and, you know, my cousin, he was, he's into startups. He Now he runs a big podcast. He sold the company and everything like that. And he was like, Oh, what do you want to do? And my brother's like, oh, I want to go to Wall Street, you know, then go into VC and all these things. And he was like, why don't you just like go into VC? Like, why are you trying to go about it in this roundabout way? <laughs> and so he was like, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess good point. And so he was like, all right, well, I've wasted all this time trying to get these like finance jobs and doing these internships. Like, what am I going to do now? He just applied that same framework of like cold emailing and reaching out to people on Wall Street. He just applied that to tech. And he's like, I'm not technical. I'll get into sales. So he just did cold outreach to all these people, ultimately connected with somebody at this company called SIF Science, like a Series A at the time, I think, back startup, Series A venture back startup, got in there as an SDR, you know, did that kind of sales role, did it for a couple of years and then realized like, hey, there's a lot of people like me that don't know how to do this. I should go help those people. And it's amazing what he's been able to do. Like there's 
examples of people that are have went from making like 40k a year to like $120,000 a year. One of his friends that he got into sales at the time, you know, when he was just working as an SDR, he helped his friend get into the company. After I think three or four years now, that guy is going to make a million dollars this year as an account executive. And my brother really, really cares about the people. Like coincidentally, when we were at Cap- Capital Camp, someone had, uh, I was talking with someone and their son got in through my brother uh, at a company. So yeah, shout out to him. That's what he does. And uh, you know, people should check that out. That's super cool. I, I've always, I mean, as soon as Lambda School kind of made it big, I don't know, I don't know if it made it big, but at least became like mainstream, Twitter mainstream aware. I feel like everyone was just kind of like, oh my God, this is so obvious. Like ISAs for sales, ISAs for nurses, ISAs for like all of the sort of obvious high earning careers that you could be trained for relatively quickly. That's not like super credential based. And I'm kind of surprised we didn't see more of those pop up quickly. So it's interesting to hear about that. It's such a cool mechanism. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's this whole process of learning never stops. It it should always keep going and, you know, you can increase being able to retool careers Mm -hmm. whenever you want. And especially for sales, people don't realize like there's a lot of companies where the salespeople make more than the CEO, at least on a salary basis, you know, equity aside. But like, yeah, there's some there's some ridiculous situations out there for (laughs) for really good salespeople. Yeah, 100 percent. Sales is the best career to go into if you want some relative safety. But you have like again relatively in most cases uncapped upside uh, it's yeah. amazing yeah so was that a was that like a little squad like you and your brother and your cousin sean sean peary right yeah sean he lived in san francisco at the time i guess kind of still does in the bay area but yeah i mean you know it's just family like my cousin lived out in san francisco i had moved out there uh, to go work at facebook and so yeah you know we would hang out from time to time we have a bunch of family in the bay area I I listen to his, his podcast sometimes and I, I really like what, what they do. I got some buddies that used to work for him. And I remember I don't remember the exact quote, but it's some something about like real estate is where like not that smart people go to like get rich or get rich reliably. It was like something like that. It was did, did you guys fight over that? Was that like did you inspire that quote? Did, like, did you- uh, I love that quote. I think it's so accurate. I think the exact quote is something along the lines of like, um, real estate has the highest proportion amount proportion amount of dumb people getting rich. Uh, which is very true. Like, you know, real estate, one of the reasons I got into it. I looked at like what was going on in you know a variety of industries and I said like look real estate you have it's super simple. It's a hard asset. It's been around for decades. It's it's not complex. You just have to put in a little bit of, you know, work and and get your hands a little bit dirty. But, you know, I met this one guy uh, in Florida who worked for my uh, one of my uncles running a domino store at some point. And this guy had like 40 houses and he barely spoke any English. And this guy was, you know, making this great money, just like buying house after house, running it out to people. I think like that is, real estate in some ways is the American dream for people owning cash flowing real estate because it's so simple and it's just a very like sustainable type of business. It's been around forever. It's going to continue to be around forever. And, you know, I will say like there's a lot of sharks in real estate, especially when you get into the institutional space. So you have to be careful. But that quote, I think, is probably pretty fair. Is is what attracted you to it after? Because you spent how long in tech, like high levels of of tech? I mean, you, I think we worked at Facebook for at least a few years. 
Yeah, yeah. First, I started my career actually uh, after Michigan State at GE. They had these like entry level finance rotational programs. I did that. Then they had some more like accelerated training programs to get you on the executive route. I did that. Uh, then after that, I moved to Facebook. There was a couple like inflection points, I would say, of specific things that happened while I was there that we can get into if you want. But ultimately, what it was was that I didn't want to report to anybody anymore. I was like sick of having being told what to do. I didn't like that someone could put a meeting on my calendar at like, you know, whatever time they wanted. And I pretty much had to be there. You can't <laughs> say no, you got to go. And so it was those kinds of things. And, you know, there's a couple of things that happened where I was like, yeah, this is not how I want my life to be. Like, I want freedom over my time. I want to be, you know, I didn't think this at the time, but now after reading the book, it's like, I want to be a sovereign individual. And so that's, you know, ultimately kind of the theme that had me make the leap into real estate. Interesting. And, and you knew you had sort of examples in that space, you know, this, this guy that you met before, like, did you see people in real estate kind of living the life that you wanted to? Yeah, I think so. Um, look, I saw a lot of people making a lot of money and I was like, that's great. I saw people having like relative freedom over their time. So that was great. I tried a bunch of different things. Like I looked at, I, I thought about going to Hack Reactor, right? Like to get technical skills to maybe go and be a software engineer. I thought maybe I could be a product manager. I went to, I went to go work in a Domino's. So I was like, maybe I could just, uh, you know, run these Domino's, and, like build a franchise. Uh, that'd be great. I lasted like one day, and I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> so I left that. Um, so I tried a bunch of paths, and then real estate was the one that just like, you know, really resonated with me with how I think about the world. Some of my strengths as it relates to financial modeling, operational expertise, building systems, and those kinds of things. It, what was the uh, what was the like experiment you did? You were kind of dipping your toes into a bunch of different stuff here. What was the part that you did in real estate? What I would do every morning is I would take the shuttle from Facebook from San Francisco to Menlo Park, which is about like a one hour drive both ways. And so that's when I was like running all my experiments. Like I was reading books, I was reading blogs, I was trying different things. Specifically in real estate, what I did was I said, I want to go buy houses in college towns. And so I was like, you know, college is going to be around like for probably the next decade, at least, I think. And so parents sign on uh, as co-signers onto these uh, leases with students. Students sign 12-month leases, but they only live in it for nine months. Like, this sounds great. So I was going to go do that. Then I, I didn't know anybody in real estate. I had one uncle that I knew was in real estate, but I had no idea what he did. I brought my idea to him and he was like, yeah, you should not do this. I started with single family homes as well. And you know you make two hundred dollars a month. So imagine how many you have to buy to recreate the the lifestyle you want, or something like that. And I was like, oh okay. <laughs> He's like, you know what you should look into is multifamily. That's what I do, which is like these you know larger apartment complexes. You get more economies of scale. You can have more people that work for you, so on and so forth. And so I went down that path, started looking, and I was like, all right. My uncle didn't work with anybody in the family. I was like, this is the one person that like I need to be working for though, because you know I can trust them. They'll probably teach me really well, um, so on and so forth. And so what I did was I underwrote a hundred deals in thirty days. I went to brokers' websites like CBRE, JLL, so on and so forth. Downloaded the OM, like the offering memorandums of these properties from the websites, the financials, and then I would just put together like basic financial models that any real estate. Analy acquisitions analyst would do. Did all that, kind of got a sense for how I should be doing these, 
showed my work you, to my uncle. And you did that just like volunteer, like on spec. You just kind of were like, I want to learn how to do this. The information is public. I can just kind of like go put in reps on this high value task and show what I can do. Exactly. Let me just go like, let me go to practice, right? That's what I'm doing every day. I'm going to practice for 30 days straight and I'm just going to get practice reps in and no one is telling me what to do. I'm allowed to do this. Like you can, anyone can go download these things. Um, so I did that and then I showed him my work and I was like, Hey, I know you spend a lot of time on this. Look, I can just do this for you. And he was like, this is great. Let's do it. And so for over the course of a year, about pretty much did an apprenticeship for him where I, you know, did the, these underwritings. I did a little bit of asset management, some investor relations, and just progressively took on all uh, like larger and larger responsibilities up until the point where I felt like, okay, you know, I can probably go do this for myself. And do you mind recapping some of like what you learned in that pro like in doing all those reps of underwriting? I remember asking you at, at Capital Camp, like, what is the single most important decision in your business? And you were like, is the buying decision. If you buy the right property, you can mess up a lot of other stuff. We don't, but you could mess up a lot of other stuff and, and still be in, in pretty good shape. And underwriting is kind of the, like that is the core of that decision, right? That is like all the assumptions and ranges and balances. Can you like take us through kind of everything that you learned in those reps? Yeah, totally. So there's like a variety of factors of everything that you're looking at when you're underwriting a deal, right? So you want to understand like, Okay, what's been going on at this property? Who lives here? Uh, you know, what do the demographics look like? How have the owners been running the property? Uh, what's going on in the surrounding neighborhood? Like, has there been more multifamily built? Has there been retail built? Has there been homes built? Is there crime in this area? Uh, where's the path of progress? Right? Like, are, are people continually building in this area and it's getting better here, or has it been getting worse? Looking up like certain zoning plans, like. You know, what are they planning? What have they done in the past? What are they looking to do in the future? All of those kinds of things. You know, once you essentially have somewhat of a portfolio or at least a trusted property management partner, then you can kind of refine your actual PL pro forma expectations. So, for example, how much money should I be spending on repairs and maintenance for a building that was built in 2000? versus a building that was built in 1980. You know, in the beginning, maybe I was just using rules of thumb for that. But then over time, as you have a portfolio in this area, you know the number, there's no guessing, right? How much money should I be spending on marketing, on payroll, on all of those kinds of things? On the top line, it's, look, I have this property that I'm looking at. You know, they're charging a $1,300 average effective rent. What are all the comparable properties in the area charging? What are the uh, properties that are nicer than this one charging or the ones that are lower than this one charging. Uh, you got to secret shop these properties to understand like, are the, is, is one of the reasons that like just the leasing agents are bad, they're not running a good sales process, therefore they don't have high occupancy. So it's so much of just like, yeah, I spent so many hours, you know, doing this and then so many hours on Zoom with my uncle learning. You know, it's even hard for me to like recap, like, what are all those things? <laughs> I think at one point I made like a underwriting checklist and it was so long, but you know, over time, then you begin to suss out like, okay, what are the core things that matter? Right. How can I evaluate a deal within like two minutes and then just put it in like the too hard or pass pile versus, okay, it checks these boxes. Let me start to go deeper. Yeah. How many, like if you, if you want to go look at a hundred deals or something, how many are Hey, this is a profitable deal. Now we have to go to like the opportunity cost test versus you can throw out 90 because they're just, they suck and 
the other 10 are hard to tell if they're all big wins, but you're kind of like, I feel pretty confident with these 10. Like, how does that break down? Yeah. So in total, we get all our deals from like a variety of sources, right? So some are going to be off market, some are going to be direct from brokers before it's actually been listed to the public. Some are just going to be public, like, hey, they've been listed and anyone can go take a look at them. Let's say if we gather all of those sources and we look at 100 deals of those, probably like 80 are going to be immediate passes where we don't even need to spend our time. I think that might be more of a subset over the past two or more of a trend over the past two years, just given how high pricing for all types of different asset values have gotten. But that's generally what it looks like. And then of that, we're only, you know, if you look at 100, we're buying 0.1. So last year we looked at, or maybe 0.2, last year we looked at uh, 1,000 deals and we did two deals. One was a $29 million, 129 unit property. And then the other one was a $84.7 million property for 336 units. So a thousand deals to do too. Wow. <laughs> so you kind of look at a lot. My only really analogy to this is like, well, I have a few different ones, but I imagine it's very different from like both sort of private equity company investing and annual investing. Like how many of how many of those thousand do you go after to like win those two? Or are you kind of like, if we're winning this, we're winning this, like I imagine this is like a somewhat efficient market, right? A lot of these are posted publicly. A lot of people are underwriting the same things. You know, what is that kind of like, oh, we want this one to like, oh, we got this one look like? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I would say, okay, so let's say like of those thousand last year, we probably made offers on like maybe eight to 10. It is a relatively efficient market. However, there's such variance in how people are underwriting as well as primarily what their cost of capital and strategy is, right? So for example, like, you know, if you're a life insurance company that's buying these real estate assets, all you're looking for is like, you know, two to 4% yield, you know, year one and, and you're good and, you know, you're going to get some organic rent growth and stuff like that. And that's why they buy those, you know, luxury buildings that you see in, um, you know, downtowns in downtown Austin, downtown Miami, wherever, versus, you know, us, I'm trying to get, to like a 7% preferred rate of return as quickly as possible that I can pay to my investors, right? And then over and above that, we're trying to execute our business plan to to raise rents to typically hit somewhere in the range of, you know, on the very low end of 14% IRR on, you know, a typical end, maybe 17 to 20% IRR. So yeah, it is efficient, but everyone, every buyer has a different lens that they're looking at these assets through. That's super interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought really about the like breadth of different owners that these things have and how they manage them and what they're optimizing for. So that's pretty interesting. I, I think there's a there's also a lot of interesting stuff. Quite a few of the people that I've talked to who have bought small businesses or bought businesses at all are like, the, my first lesson learned was that smaller is not easier and in fact is probably worse. And I feel like you, it sounds like you, you learned that lesson by osmosis or your uncle, but you're, I mean, to go do a, what you said your two deals were both like north of 50 million. I think one was north of 100 million. That sounds really scary um, and like a huge sort of leap to make. Like, how did you, did you ladder up to that? Did you just sort of internalize immediately like how important it is to just do larger scale deals? I feel like there's something really interesting in that. And I, and I heard your on your podcast with Chris Powers, you sort of break down some of those. And I'd love to go into some of the kind of the importance of scale to your model. 
Yeah. The ones we did last year was a 29 million and then the $85 million one, mm-hmm. uh, 84.7. And so, yeah, it's a good question. Like when I was doing this apprenticeship with my uncle, I think that eliminated the fear of doing large deals because I saw him doing a $50 million deal and I was like, okay, like that's just what you do. You know, you don't do uh, a 50 unit or a 70 unit or an 80 unit or something like that. Because, you know, we actually did look at those deals and just, you know, when you're underwriting it, I'm like, okay, we got to pay the property management company like 8% for this 80 unit. And, you know, we're not getting as good economy of scale on marketing, on payroll, all of those kinds of things. And then I realized like, okay, so you need economies of scale, but like, what is the challenge that most people aren't able to get there? So typically it's, hey, I can't, I don't have that equity amount, right? And so I got to, I can't do this myself. I got to go raise that money. So it's not easy to, you know, I think people on Twitter will make it like super easy to raise investor money. I don't think it is. I think it's tough. Like you have to put in the time to build the investor relationships, right? Even now for me, like I get nervous on every deal we launch, like are we, are we going to be able to raise? Uh, and we do. And it's, you know, relatively simple, but you know, that's like years and years of effort that you put in to create these investor relationships buy deals, execute on the business on the business plan, get good returns for investors, all of those kinds of things. So that's one piece of it, which is just the equity that you need is the challenge. Uh, the second piece of it is, you know, just simply like the net worth requirements that you need for the loan, given that this is, you know, if you're buying a duplex or whatever versus buying, you know, these larger ones, it's just like a much different ball game. You have institutional lenders that are looking at your track record, looking at your background, there's net worth and liquidity requirements, all of those kinds of things. But again, that can be solved by, if you don't have it, you go find a wealthy person to partner with you on. And then lastly, just to kind of wrap it up and answer your question, which was like, I went after it because that's just how I thought. Like when my I saw my uncle doing it, I was like, this is just how you do it. This makes sense to me. In order to do it, you have to solve those number one and two problems. Let's go figure out how we solve those on number two, on number one, we created the investor relationships. We executed on our deals. On number two, we have three partners that you know have all done relatively well, and so we're able to go buy these deals. And and what is the like order of operations? If you commit to a deal, then go raise the equity, or, or do you get like a period of time to say like, let me go see how much I can raise if we can take down this eighty million dollar deal, or do you just have to like leap and hope you can <laughs> raise the <laughs> raise the money on the way down? Oh yeah, you got to leap and hope. There's a caveat okay. to that, that, you know, we kind of know how much we're able to raise, right? Because now we've done this enough that when we launch a deal, we know like, you know, how much we'll be able to get. And so the way it works is, you know, we're always looking for deals. Uh, one of my partners, Suppin, he under he leads our underwriting and acquisitions. He will be looking at deals every day, talking with brokers, reading market reports, all of that kind of stuff. And he'll find a deal. Ultimately, we like it. We'll go tour that property along with our property manager, our loan broker, as well as you know the real estate broker that has the listing. Kind of take a look at some units, walk the property, see what the deferred maintenance is like. Like, How much do we have to spend on this property to fix it up? What are we going to do on the interiors of these? Then we'll go do our, you know, I would say high-level due diligence, kind of like underwriting the deal. Then we'll say, okay, here's what we can get to. We'll figure out, is this purchase price going to work for the seller? negotiate uh, the PSA, get it under contract right when we have it under contract. Typically, you have about 45 to 60 days to get all the financing done, get the equity, do our deep due diligence where we go walk every single unit, look at all the leases, look at all the bills, look at all the contracts that they have, all of that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then meanwhile, we're also doing the equity raise and, you know, then we close on the property. So you get under first, under contract first, then you raise the equity. But, you know, we're, we're all talking to our investors. So we know always like mm -hmm. typically how much we can raise. And so you just have a very crazy like six to eight weeks there. You're raising all the money <laughs> and finding all the hairballs all at the same time. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We've got a relatively efficient process kind of. So when we, right when we get it under contract, we send out, we've already talked with the seller early on of like, hey, we want to get on site, you know, right after we sign the contract, right after we have it, what we'll do is we'll send a one pager that goes to the seller, which says like, here's who's going to be on site. Here's how many people will be there. Here's the amount of people we need to like with us to escort us into each unit. Here, here's the roofs we need. We're going to be getting on all the roofs. Like where's the access? Is it, you know, through the building or over here? We're going to put cameras through pipes on this date. So we lay it all out in a schedule. So it's super organized for sellers to be able to work with us. And then we get that like unit walks and all of that stuff done within like the first three days after having it under contract typically. So after that, I know like, okay, this property was, it is given to us as presented, like great, no risks. And then after that, there'll be certain follow-ups like, hey, we saw that this lease does $1,100, but on the rent roll, it says $1,200. Can you help us explain the difference? Those little kinds of things. But yeah, that's pretty much how it works. That's awesome. I feel like there's a, there's a, this is, I think, where I want to spend like most of the meat of the time because I feel like the way you guys have built your company is, I, I don't know how unique it is in the real estate world, but it seems, at least from the outside, to be incredibly like efficient and well-run. But I think a good starting point is, is to, you, you've got two partners and how did you, how did you guys come together? Or how did you find each other? And when did this, when did it start? And then I want to get into some of the, the operational stuff that you guys do, which is super cool. Yeah, totally. Uh, I do think it is unique in the real estate world with how we operate. I don't think it's like in a very traditional sense, at least how we run the kind of, you know, holding company. But yeah, my two partners are Sapin and Pooja, who are both brother and sister. Uh, so Sapin leads our underwriting and acquisitions, and then Pooja leads our asset management, which is, you know, really just overseeing the, the property management company, making sure our business plans being executed on the property, so on and so forth. Both just really good people have great values, have extremely high integrity. We have just very deep trust with each other. And so we know things are going to get done. We know that they're going to get done at a very high level. Super helpful. I met them when I was doing the apprenticeship for my uncle. I had met both of them because they were doing deals as well. And my uncle had done a deal with them. And so then we started doing JV deals together, me alongside them. And then over time, we just realized like, hey, we should all just do this under one umbrella because we work really good together. We all seem to want to build the same type of company. We all have very shared kind of values. And then we each have like very comp complementary strengths to each other that it would allow us to run a really successful business. And so that's you know how we came together. And our strategy was the same from when we started individually. And it's been the same as we've come under one umbrella. That's magic. I, I love those kind of organic sort of like we met, we did one thing together, then we started sort of serially doing stuff together. And then it, it just kind of, it's easy to trust that, uh, you don't spend a lot of time losing sleep over, over those things. I, I remembered a few, uh, sort of small detail questions to go back to. Did you, did your uncle pay you for your apprenticeship? He gave me like a small amount for one of the deals that we closed. I told him though, at the very beginning, like, I don't want to make any money from this, right? Like I'm just here to learn. So don't like, I don't need money. You know, to his credit, he still gave me a little bit for helping to close the deal. 
That's awesome. I, I, yeah. There's an underrated uh, approach, I think, if, if people can do it to spend a chapter of your career, like very intentionally apprenticing and absorbing and doing work and you know, sort of a volunteer capacity, but expecting or, or trying to earn your keep in knowledge. Yep. Not being shy yeah. about demanding education <laughs> in exchange yeah. for your all your hard work. Totally. That's a huge point, I think. Like, you know, you can do anything. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of cliche, but you can do anything you want. Like, no one's holding you back from anything. You know, you, like, I use that as an opportunity because I had, like, saved money before. Because I was like, hey, mm -hmm. this is not, this working thing is not going to work out for me. <laughs> so I have to save money. Like when I first went to work at Facebook, my wife, my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we were long distance. So I just lived in like East Palo Alto at first, which is not Palo Alto. Like it's not nice. And I had a, a house with like five roommates and I yeah. like ate all of my meals at Facebook. I used the gym at Facebook. I saved like everything I could all to be able to do an apprenticeship. And I've talked to people because I'm pretty vocal about the apprenticeship model. And a lot of people have said like, yeah, here's what I did you know, to go, you know, get my foot in the door. And I think it's super underrated. And if people can put themselves in a position to do that, uh, you can connect with like virtually anyone that you want to connect with. Especially, I think, in, in real estate where there's not always obvious entry-level roles at these firms, right? And, and when we get into kind of how your company is constructed, I feel like that'll get a little more obvious. The other detail question I think is interesting. What you said, like, it wouldn't work with a 8% to your property manager's expense ratio with some of the smaller properties that you looked at when you were underwriting. What do you what do you get with some of those larger multifamilies? Uh, yeah, it depends on the, the number of units and the revenue it's generating. But generally speaking, let's say for something that's like, you know, 300 units, maybe you're paying about two and a half percent of total revenue. And then, you know, 200 units, maybe it's three to three and a half percent, something like that. So it's not that it doesn't work on the smaller properties, like it works, but just your margins are much thinner because you're, you know, you have to hit an absolute value dollar amount to make it worth it for the property management company typically. Yeah. I mean, I think I pay, I'm not sure what the effective rate is. Uh, so I have just one single family rental and I basically pay 10% plus first month for placement. So the effective rate, depending on turnover, is probably like 12 to 15%, depending on how long a tenant stays. So I heard you talking about that. I was like, oh, that makes a ton of sense. And I don't think I'm getting like taken advantage of by the property manager by any means. It's just a totally, the cost structure for them is, is much worse to manage individual properties. So that makes a ton of sense. It's also, I, I've heard you talk about your property manager before, like really easy to get taken advantage of in that relationship. And then there's a lot of, especially on the smaller side, I think a lot of kind of shady, <laughs> shady practice in property managers. So that, that is a, a healthy fear that I have of like, especially in the single family market, especially if you're not local to that neighborhood, it just, yeah, you, your underbelly is exposed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. There's a lot of just like stuff that can happen. I think that can just, it's too tough to get caught. Right. Yeah, regardless of size of property, there's just so many things are happening that you don't know, right? Like it could be so easy for a property manager to be like, you know, be like, okay, we're, we need landscaping. Uh, let's get three bids, figure out who's the best. It could be super easy for a property manager to just get a kickback from, you know, a landscaper to be like, hey, yeah, you know, you come in at this price, you know, you give me a little bit of this off the top and, you know, we'll go with you or something. And I'm sure that 
I mean, I know these types of things have happened. However, with the property management company that we use, we made a very deliberate decision to be like, we're not going to do property management. We're going to outsource this the best because we believe our strengths are you know focused on these other areas. And so we use uh, this company called Bell Partners. They're like one of the largest multifamily property managers in the nation. They've been around for 45 years. They manage about 70,000 units and they're just like a top tier best in class team, uh, particularly in the markets, you know, that we play in, which we have experience with them. Just an amazing group of people. They've built great processes, great systems, and you can trust them. So yeah, that's that's been amazing. So okay, let's talk about some of the structure of of your firm. So what were the what were the things you were trying to or the vision for how you were going to build your company when you when you guys set out and first started? Has, has it changed over time? Like, how did you, how did you decide? You sounded like you were engineering for freedom, at least on a personal level, because you knew what kind of deals you wanted to do. You knew who you wanted to work with. What are all the decisions that, that kind of followed on from that? Yeah. So it's interesting. It's probably taken a couple different paths. So when we first started, my intention was, our intention was like, let's build the biggest real estate private equity firm that we can. Right. And I think we were just like a little bit naive, but you know, we just started executing and winning deals and stuff like that. And then we started thinking about like, okay, if we want to do this and be one of those big ones, we have to go and primarily our investors cannot be the type of investors we have right now. It needs to be people that are like institutional capital, right? Like Blackstone and Carlisle. And those people need to be our investors where, you know, they're putting up like nine to 10 figures with us and we're going to buy deals. However, after talking to enough people that went that route, what I realized is that if you do that, you have no freedom. <laughs> like your all of your control is given up. A lot of the mandates come from them, buy sell decisions, budgets, refinancings, just really everything. And so building that type of business is very different from the intention of what we wanted our lives to be like. And so what we kind of and so we didn't go down that path and kind of what we realized is that okay it's best to have you know the types of investors that we do you also don't have kind of like investor concentration risk because you have a lot more investors it's a little bit more fun because like you are able to connect with like real people i mean the best thing about our investors is that i meet people that are well ahead of me in in terms of like career success building large and amazing families and things like that and just lo- knowing life much more than i do and just like teaching me a bunch and that's the best thing about some of these investors so we went down that route and then kind of we took inspiration from berkshire's from berkshire but particularly how they have their head office right which is just a handful of people like charlie warren ted ajit jane and then i think greg abel five like main people and you know a couple of those running businesses and then everybody else is just like admin assistants pretty much and so we just took that same model to say we don't need a lot of people in the type of business that we're building what we need is maybe three to five maybe like three to four full-time employees and then besides that just like assistants slash vas and that's how we've went about building the business because it's a very process and you know systems oriented business was there a North Star that you were looking for as far as like 
we're dancing around leverage as as the topic which i think is and i never want to like impose language so i, I want to kind of pull out of you like how you were thinking about this at the time are you like oh scale isn't great so we'd rather go for efficiency we'd rather go for scale per headcount we'd rather or or just like set a hard cap on headcount and then scale to as much sort of aum or uh, portfolio size as you can like what was the new framework the or, or set of constraints that you put on your growth once you realized you weren't just kind of nakedly pursuing scale i think the way that we you know in the beginning like i wouldn't give us too much credit like when we first started <laughs> it was just like hey we just need to buy properties and they need to be good properties and we need to yeah. like execute on these business plans right in the beginning i understood financial leverage really well because i was like oh you take debt on these properties and because of that you're able to juice your equity and cash on cash return percentages, right? So that's great. And you have to be comfortable with leverage, you know, and and like doing certain things like having mortgage reserves, buying interest rate caps, stuff like that. So you don't get blown out by leverage. So I understood financial leverage very clearly. As we started building the business and kind of implementing like processes and systems and SOPs, what I didn't realize was that all of those things are building leverage where every time I'm going to go do something that I know either can be automated, can be, uh, it's going to need to be repeated, or I don't like doing. That can be either eliminate, automated, eliminated, or delegated, and you have to figure out which one is which, right? And so that's kind of how over time then I just started pursuing that. I wouldn't say we necessarily put any constraints. We just said like, here's the lane we want to play in, which is we want to make money for you know people that we like and that we admire. We want to go buy property, these multifamily properties, 100 to 400 units, really only in like two markets, like one to two markets. And we want to uh, just have a very simple business model. If we buy zero deals in a year, like that's not a failure or a success because like that's just what happened in the market. If we buy one deal a year, two deals a year, that's great. But like we just want to be patient, buy these great deals and stuff like that. So I wouldn't even say we put constraints on it. It was just like, let's build this business, let's keep it simple, let's build these processes and systems. Over time, right, after I read, you know, kind of Naval's like how to get rich without getting lucky tweet storm. Um, I read your book. Then I started realizing more of these different forms of leverage, right? I mean, that's probably one of the reasons I got active on Twitter. As we built these things into the business, I've realized like, oh, this is leverage, right? This isn't just processes and freeing up your time. Like this is leverage. And so it was a, just a different reframing for me over time after we did these things. I, I'm, I keep hearing like different books and I feel like delegate, eliminate, automate is like, that's the Tim Ferriss thing, like the four hour work week, which was just like OG. I, I've, I don't know. When did you read that? Do you remember? Like how uh, I read it while I was at face. I read it while I was at Facebook. And to my point earlier, like, you know, people can put meetings on your calendar and you have to show up that week. Yeah. I just started declining meetings and like not showing <laughs> up to things. And I realized like, oh yeah, this doesn't work. You know, if you're like a typically a normal type of employee, even though he said like it could work and you know, you have to like do it gradually and you'll, you can be a remote work employee. I think I went like from zero to a hundred, like way too quick. And, uh, People are like, what are you doing? This is not a lot. <laughs> was there anything that you did bring from, from Facebook into your or, or your t broader tech experience into the real estate industry? Yeah. 
Okay, so first is, you know, from GE actually, which was like when I first started, everything was just SOPs. Like, you know, you're in this entry level rotational program, you're switching every six months. And so, you know, when you go into a role, whoever was in the role before you, they had created like a hundred page uh, standard operating procedure, which is like, here's all the Excel things you do, right? Here's where you click the button to do this, this, and this. And so I s remember that and I'm like, wow, that's like a great way to just like train anybody, right? Like anyone can go do this. Like I don't, I got a college degree. Like I don't need to be doing this. Like I should outsource this, but um, that's one piece of it. I think broadly working in tech, I don't know if it was from Facebook in particular, but I think just working in tech, you get more exposure to different types of things. Like all these skills I learned, like copywriting, writing online, how Facebook ads work, how how virality works, all of those kinds of things. There was probably like habit stacking or talent stacking where I've applied those over time to our real estate business. An example is like probably Twitter where in the beginning, like we just bought properties, our investors were our Indian uncles and, you know, the, the word of mouth that would grow from their friends. And then I started writing on Twitter, like about real estate and what we do when I joined or when I started getting active, rather, I think on real estate Twitter, there was like, I felt like there was like five of us. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was fun. We were just talking about real estate. And then over time, I realized like, oh, wow, like a lot of what I know, people don't know, and mm -hmm. they want to hear more about it and learn more about it. And a lot of the skills I probably learned, like writing online, virality, so on and so forth, have been helpful on Twitter and, you know, meeting new people and things like that. Yeah, you do a bunch of great, great threads about I don't know, your acquisitions process, your VA process. I, I, you, the line you wrote stuck in my head, which I'm sure was very designed to do. If you make over 100K a year, you should have a personal assistant. <laughs> right. I, like, I don't know how arbitrary of a call that was, but it was the perfect way to, I think that was like the hook line on your, the, the big thread of like everything that you learned working with, with virtual assistants and EAs and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, totally. That thread, like, you know, I feel like once a week or at least once every couple of weeks or something like that, I'll get tagged by something random, which is like, you know, someone asks a question like, oh, well, how do you work with virtual assistants? And someone's like, oh, like at Rohan has a good thread about this or something like this. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is the leverage that, you know, you and Naval talked about that I'm now seeing here where it just continues to live on and live on, you know, like a year later, whatever it was. Yeah, the, the benefit of that long tail of of good content, like especially if it's evergreen, is is like really, really incredible. They just keep paying dividends. And, and like, you know, it's not like tweets have royalties or anything, but they in they continue to accumulate or continue to be like signposts, I guess, towards mm -hmm. sort of the rest of your work, which I'm sure for you guys, you know, helps bring in talent and deals and investors and stuff. Mm -hmm. All kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I I forgot to tell you earlier, I'm having a Verner's in honor of our mutual Michigan roots. Um, <laughs> nice. I a, love it. Get a, the <laughs> get a theme going. When did you start bringing in virtual assistants and EAs into the business? And what are some of the things that you, that you delegate or automate? I think the other, the, the piece that I brought from tech that I'm sure you did too, is like, you just work close enough to developers and you see them have like pure hatred for any repetitive task and how they turn <laughs> to like all kinds of SaaS tools more often than not. Like they don't, always code up a solution but just really being really handy with zapier or webhooks or apis and things you're like oh shit that is easy <laughs> right 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 <laughs> or at right. least it's easy for you so yeah. yeah all all of those kind of things i think are really helpful background especially when you come into a real estate industry that's not nearly as tech savvy or, or tech native i suppose 
Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, I think that that's a good point on Zapier. Like we use that so often with a lot of the processes that we have, whether it's with gathering investor commitments or other types of things where things just happen automatically. Right. And that's an example where it's like, hey, we can go instead of doing this process, like we'll just automate it. It needs to be done. We'll automate it. It's better than delegating it because it can't be screwed up. I mean, unless it's something in like the code changes, but yeah, that's super helpful. That's one thing I learned from there. We implemented, started using VAs from day one because before, when I was at Facebook is when I started like using the VAs after I read four hour work week. And it took me a while. Like at first, you know, it was a complete failure. I wasn't good at giving directions. I don't think I was good at uh, interviewing and finding the right VAs. Sometimes I felt like I was just like making up work just for this VA where it's like, I wouldn't do this normally. Like, why am I having this other person do this? But, you know, those are the like mistakes and failures that you learn from. But, you know, when we did it for our business, we just used it from day one. And it goes with like a bunch of the processes that we use. So, for example, you know, we make distributions to our to our investors on a quarterly basis. Now, we do that, you know, with a full-time employee that, you know, goes through and makes the distributions through the bank account. But the VA is the one who makes that, uh, who reflects that in the investor portal, right? Where they'll put, Mm -hmm. hey, the distribution has been processed, so on and so forth. We write investor updates on a monthly basis. That's something that if you think about it, like, it's not just writing it, right? You can write it, you write it in Google Docs or whatever. But then after that, you have to format it. You have to put the nice pictures. You have to make sure the pictures align. You have to convert it to PDF. You have to go to the portal, click the buttons, upload it. The, the VA does all of that. You know, we just write it. Here's the link. They take care of all of that. And, and you, know, you save yourself. Per property basis, right? Because you're syndicating all of these individually. Exactly. Per property yeah. basis. So you save yourself, let's say like, you know, five to seven minutes on each property that the VA does all of that stuff for you. And then it's done on a monthly basis. We all do things like, when we're doing a raise on a deal, you know, and we confirm investment investment amounts and wires, we like a VA will have read-only access to like that specific account. They're able to email the person, "Hey, your wire has been mm. confirmed." And that would be so much work for you know me or someone to be doing on a on a daily basis. We check it, you know, the bank account like a couple times a day during the raise, and then over time they just start getting more things. Like they start handling your email inbox they manage your calendar they're kind of like a sh- like a like a shield between you and what's the inbound that's coming at you right mm-hmm. and so it's super helpful like you just stop worrying about all of these little things that happen in life even the personal stuff right like the uh, like my umbrella insurance needed to be re- renewed right like i didn't even know that i didn't even know that it was renewed i just know that <laughs> My one VA, she did it. And then she told me after. And so it's all of those things that just are off your plate. And you don't need to be thinking about these things because they're not strategic decisions. And you don't need to be doing these things because they're normally a waste of time. Is there anything that you consider too small to be automated or to be delegated? Let me start with this. I have a framework of how I think about what should be automated or delegated to save time and it's uh, it's it's like a formula it's um time of task times frequency that it occurs right so if you're doing something that takes you one minute and you do it on a yearly basis okay then like you know even i would consider actually delegating that but maybe i don't need to right 
just so like, let's say it's something I don't like, just so I never have to worry about it again, right? So for the rest of my life until I'm whatever years old, I don't have to ever do this again. <laughs> so, um, you know, but yeah, I honestly do try to delegate like every single thing that, you know, is repeatable or that I don't like doing. And yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. I think more though it, important is like what types of things can be eliminated. I think a lot of things people do and that like I've done in the past, which I have to think of some examples, but I was just like, why are we doing this? Like we should just stop doing this. This doesn't matter. Like let's just eliminate it. We're only doing it because we've been doing it. Like this should stop now. And so we just eliminate it and we don't waste anyone's time doing that. Which is just the beauty of simplicity. You're like, ah, oh, it's just such a relief as soon as you, <laughs> that is the best thing, which is to just deleting shit off your calendar. Like now that you can get away with it, it has to just feel like pure, pure bliss. <laughs> totally. Uh, <laughs> Sunday night ritual, go through and just delete things off the calendar. Yes. Delete, delete, punt, reschedule. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yes. Love those, love those empty days. Is there anything else that's like out of the box that you you have your EA do either personally or I, I love? I've done a few episodes. I just did one with some of the guys at Athena, and just like I love how far they have pushed this into either insanely like minutia or insanely big projects that they have EAs have. Because so I think some people a lot of times are surprised by what they can hand off or the new things that become possible like the complexity of system that you would never engineer for yourself but you can delegate the creation of a system to the ea and, and sort of like let that the process improvement compound by like making the improvement a delegation in itself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i just pulled up my list here like it's everything dude it's like like do <laughs> downloading books for rohan from amazon to his kindle so like let's say there's a tweet and it's like, uh, you know, here's my 10 favorite books. And, you know, I just see it and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I'll just click the link, you know, share to her and the VA will like, you know, download all the books to my Kindle. Right. So it's like something even as simple as that, where like that thing probably happens once a week where I see a book on Twitter and I want to go um, do it, you know, like email hotels to get upgraded rooms. Does uh, that work? Yeah, sometimes it depends. It depends on oh, the hotel. Yeah. All right. Yeah, just honestly everything. Like everything that you Well, I my fr uh my friend said Amen said this thing I heard Eamon say which Abdullah was like, from AppSumo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the yeah, CEO of AppSumo. He grew up from like like a crazy amount, like 3 million dollars, like 100 million dollars in lifetime revenue, I think, which is amazing. You know, he's a great operator. He said this one thing which was like, you know, for certain types of businesses kind of what you want out of life, you should think about how can I run this business from my phone. So now mm. pretty much every time I, so now I try to do that as much as possible. And whenever I have to go to my computer to do something, I think about like, can I take a Loom video for this? So this can be a process that gets delegated or is this something I can automate? And if so, let me just take the additional 15 to 20 minutes or whatever right now to do that. And if you just keep doing that over time, it's going to you know, compound over time. In the beginning, when you get the VA, I think it's tough. You spend a lot of time creating these systems, but over time, it, it really pays off. Yeah, did you have to fight through that sort of like, oh, this could be a two-minute task or a 30-minute training session, but you're just tr beating yourself into making those or, or inspiring yourself, I suppose, probably more positively into making those investments so that, you know, you, like training yourself to think in that d d delayed gratification like sort of way 
Yeah, I've tried. I, I mean, like, yeah, it happens. It even happens now, right? Where I'm saying, like, oh, I should just take the 20 minutes to do it. And I'm like, yeah. I don't I just don't want to do that at all. <laughs> and but you know it's good for you. And so what I've realized is like when I do have the motivation then to do it, when you see the video and the videos at like 17 minutes or whatever it might be, you're like, okay, like this wasn't that bad. Like, why am I complaining yeah. about this? Like I should just always do this. So uh, I don't have a secret other than like you just gotta do it. And then once you're done with that, like you're so happy. Yeah. Loom's a great tool because it's like you're going to do it anyway. You may as well vi take a video of it and talk through it. And that's really the only difference. And I also, I mean, you're, you're at the point now, how many VAs work at your company? We have three full-time VAs. Three full-time VAs. And then some, do you have local sort of help as well? I don't know how you... Yeah, but that's kind of on like a part-time basis. So some of it will be for work, but actually most of that stuff is personal. I'm going to sound like super lazy right now, but yes, uh, yes, yes. the more embarrassing the delegation, <laughs> the better of a story it is and the more inspiring to the rest of us. So, yes, please right. bring it on. So, uh, yeah, this will sound ridiculous, but, you know, we get so many packages from Amazon and we don't cut the boxes down after we just like throw it in the garage or something. And so I'll have someone come to like cut down all of those boxes and then, you know, put them in garbage bags, you know, just get them ready for, for trash and stuff like that. So, you know, that's something I probably, I'd never done before. And then as I started getting into delegation, those kinds of things and really taking it to like, there's certain things I never want to do. And like, this is, and I should, we should just cut these boxes down after, but we don't. And so it's fine. Someone will come, they'll do it. We'll pay them giving someone a job and some money. So that's good. The like, take my car to the car wash, which is great. They'll like handle certain types of admin things like the DMV. We needed to get like a new license plate. So they just went there going to, I, I never want to go to the DMV again. Like it's so, so terrible. Can, can so you outsource just, that? Yeah. So what I did was I sent him and I was like, Hey, you know, if there's any problems, just call me. Uh, there was a problem. They were like, uh, yes, sir. You, he can't just show up with like your information. Like he has to sign a power of attorney form and they're like, you have to sign it. And I was like, oh, okay. So I was like, yeah, I just put him back on the phone. So he gets on the phone and I was like, okay, just go in the parking lot, <laughs> fill out the form, <laughs> sign my name and just go back in there. And he's like, all right, cool. <laughs> and so, yeah, just like a power of attorney for this, not broad, but just for like this one particular task. And then he was yeah. able to do that to renew a license plate or get a new license plate or something. I, my, I bought my first car at CarMax. And like when you're checking out, they do limited power of attorney for like so that they can go to the DMV and like just have your plate mailed to you. And it's such an awesome addition to the service. Actually, it really make, makes it seem super easy. I totally forget that that's a thing that you can do or, or like send somebody to. So this is magic. Like that is a really that is an awesome story. Who who are these? Like, do, is this like? TaskRabbit? Are you going through like Airtasker platforms? Are you hiring each of these tasks individually? Or is this like one or a few people that you kind of come back to over time? Yeah. So this particular person, he reached out to me on Twitter last summer and he was like, Hey, I want to work. Like I, I had an internship or it fell through, or maybe he was just late on getting one or something. He's like, I want to work for you. I was like, Hey, we don't really have any work right now, but like one of the things I've wanted to do is build a course to teach people about real estate um, and like help them buy their first property or whatever. 
And so I was like, I can get into this, into Maven, which is like, you know, a course type of platform. And, you know, they'll teach you. I, did you use Maven? Uh, I've talked to Goggin about it when I was, I was working on the leverage course. It, it wasn't a fit. He's, his is a cohort based, like pre-scheduled courses only. And ours is kind of evergreen, but I think it's a really cool platform. I got some buddies that teach courses. On yeah. Maven. Yeah. So yeah, we did that and they had like a four week thing, which was like, here's how you build a course. So I was like, why don't you come? You can just, uh, you attend these sessions. I'll tell you like everything. We'll meet for like one hour each week. Just come to my house. We'll talk through it, but you'll build like the slides and everything like that. I'll just do the final review and make any changes and stuff like that. So uh, he did that. I did an excellent job. I forget what we had, maybe like, we didn't have a lot of people, maybe like 10 to 20 people, something like that. And then, um, you know, we did the course. I paid him for it. He was happy. He got like a good type of like, you know, scrappy internship experience. Let's say he got to learn a little bit of stuff about real estate. And then, you know, now this year he has an internship at Dell, but I was like, Hey, I need some help like around the house and stuff. Like, uh, I'll just give you cash, like for beer money. <laughs> He's like, yeah, sure. Like I'll come on over. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. And so now he comes over, you know, handle stuff and everything cool. like that. So yeah. It's so really it's good. like a trusted, trusted relationship kind of deal. Yeah, um, totally. And next summer he'll be like underwriting, you know, real estate deals for you. He'll, he'll be self-apprenticing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what he doesn't realize is I'm going to hire him after he graduates. <laughs> uh, is there is there anything in your business that cannot get automated or delegated that is either like precious to you or stubbornly resisting your attempts to to eliminate, automate, or delegate? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things for me at least, uh, and kind of how I think about like what I focus on in the business is really like our investor inquiries, right? So for example, if an investor emails and says like, hey, you know, my distribution like does not make sense in the portal or something like that, the VA can handle that because that's really just like back office stuff. But the investor says like, hey, I want to have a conversation, kind of just want to understand what's going on in the real estate market, so on and so forth, blah, blah, blah. Whether it's an email or a call, like I'm handling that. But what we have, what I've done is kind of like delegated my email inbox where, mm. you know, if it's like a high priority person, one of our investors, one of our partners, something like that, I'll just get a message from the VA immediately like, hey, you know, this person emailed you and I can email them back like within a minute, right? Versus needing to like always have my email inbox up on a screen, seeing everything that comes through and deleting, replying, whatever that helps. So that's one piece of it, you know, from an underwriting and acquisition standpoint, we could probably never, we can like automate some of it, but actually getting into the details, doing the thorough underwriting that needs to be done by, you know, someone who knows what they're doing. You couldn't really have a VA for that. And then from an asset management standpoint, again, you can automate, you can delegate some of the back office things, some of the consolidation of reports, some of the presentation of data, so on and so forth but really overseeing the uh, property manager, make sure they're executing. That needs to be done by a person that has specific expertise in that. So there's certain, like I would say, core elements of our business where we're the best at these certain things that we could not really um, automate or delegate, but we can automate or delegate certain parts of that stack. Yeah, it's amazing how much, especially when you start from doing it all yourself how much of like <laughs> modern white collar work is just like moving information between portals or formats or units or media or pdfs or inboxes or whatever and it's incredible how much value can be created in your own businesses by like having people who do that kind of stuff 
know, according to formulas and systems and in a timely way and how much time that really frees up. None of it's hard, but there's just so much of it and so much, so much more of it that you can do when you have a system for doing it, right? Like there's just a bunch of extra value that can be created. I feel like, you know, the inbox delegation is an interesting example. So like <laughs> instead of having email notification, like you probably have email notifications on your phone off and you rarely open your inbox except you, the, the, that four hour work week, like batching thing, but there are emergencies and like if there is one, you can rest easy because you know your VA is checking that and will like text you, but it's screening the the like dopamine roller coaster of always looking at your email and always seeing some annoying new thing that comes in or triaging everything yourself. But I'm sure the value, um, I mean, the value to your life of not having email notifications on, but <laughs> like is that, that elimination of that sort of shitty stimulus that you've just turned into a, a little system like. I imagine most people undervalue how much happiness is on the other side of that. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, some people would say, like one argument could be, hey, you they're going to ping you that, you know, you got an email from someone anyways, so why don't you just keep the email inbox up and just look? And then when you do see it, but it's like, no, but like then I'm looking at every one, right? Every like junk mail that comes in, every email from someone, and then I, I'm constantly getting distracted. Another example of this is like, let's say that Amazon book thing, right? So let's say I wake up in the morning and, you know, I'm like, okay, like, let's say there's three things. I saw on Twitter this Amazon book I want to buy or this book or whatever I want to buy. I need to order, you know, some kind of vitamins from Amazon. And then I need to like order, I get like a coffee subscription. I have to get a, this coffee. I have to reorder it. And then, you know, I need to make a tea time to go golf or something like that, right? All of those things are like, you know, two to four different apps I need to go in, like five buttons each I need to click and stuff like that versus me literally just pulling up Slack, like knowing those things and being like, hey, order coffee, order this vitamin, uh, book tea time for X time, add this book to Amazon. And then like I'm done and I just go on with my day. So it's kind of like something where it's like, look, I just have to only use like one app or one screen, which is just Slack. And I just put everything in here and I don't have to go to all these multiple sources. It seems small, but like over time that adds up. You're distract you're not distracted by all these other areas. Your focus is really just on one thing, which is like this person is my kind of barrel that's getting allowing me to take my thoughts, get things done for me, and allow me to move on to some of like the more high value things that are important for me. Yeah, that that's an interesting piece too. What what do you fill your time with when you are able to offload some of these things. Something we talk about in the course all the time is, is do the things only you can do in a, in a work context, but also like being sure that you use that time well, whether for productivity or or just enjoyment. So what are some of the things that you've, uh, or I guess how's your, how has your life maybe changed now that you've, you've made such an investment in these? Yeah, I think it depends based on the stage of the business that we're in, as well as like exactly what is the priorities of that time. So what I mean by that is the stage of the business early on, you know, when we had VAs, I would just spend all my other time kind of like, you know, we'd be looking at deals, we would be talking to new investors, making sure current investors understand what's going on, all of that kind of stuff. So all of my focus was directed on other high value areas of the business, primarily around finding new deals along with Suppin and you know, talking with investors. As time has 
went on, and let's say probably over the past 18 months, there's not a lot of deals out there. So we're just like super patient. We don't, we have like a really strong base and large base of investors. So we don't really need to talk to too many new investors. Although like, you know, we still make time for that. And so a lot of my in, the time now is just spent like, honestly, just like enjoying life. We have a 19 month old daughter. So like spending a lot of time with her, spending time with my wife. I'll read a lot. I probably read a lot more now than I've done, you know, previously in the early days of the business. Some of this is like, you know, some business books, but a lot of history, really just like anything that catches my interest. I'll play a lot of golf, things like that. So yeah, I'll do things that like, you know, just allow me to enjoy life and be happy because I felt like, you know, one piece of it was like, hey, don't create this business. So you just like work all the time. You created this business because you wanted the freedom. So now like it's tough, right? To be like, don't keep moving the goalposts and don't keep working when you like, you know, you don't necessarily have to like take some time to like sit back and just like enjoy life because you need to be happy. And so I always, you know, try to do that. Yeah. You don't want to make your own Facebook trap. Right. You know, you, you, <laughs> you did all this. Exactly. And I don't, you know, I'm sure we both have the same sort of scrappy Midwestern work ethic. Right. And so part of me uh, is like, doesn't allow myself to, to enjoy things unless I have done my, you know, my 18 hours of work that day. And the other <laughs> somewhat more enlightened part of me knows that that is an insane thing to say and feel and live. And that, <laughs> totally. uh, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, there's times where I'm like, you know, I'll go golfing and about like two hours in, maybe even one hour in, I'm just like, man, should I be doing this right now? Like, should I be, yeah. should I be working right now? I'll like check Slack and like nothing's happening. I'll, I'll check my email, like nothing's happening. And I'm like, okay, but like I should be doing something <laughs> and not this. So it's really yeah. weird, you know, to kind of have this mindset shift. And how do you balance that with your, with your partners? Like I struggle with that even sort of being my own partner and owner and, and solo and most of the things that I do, the, f- the fund, the side, but there's kind of a very good understanding that that's a part-time, like having partners in a full-time business here, I imagine that's a, even a little harder to navigate. Do you guys have, how, do, how does that work between you? Yeah, we each have kind of very structured roles and responsibilities, right? So we're each pretty much responsible for one area of the business, right? And so for example, let's say that we weren't able to raise money on deals or something like that. And, you know, I'm out golfing and stuff. Well, then it's like, Rohan, what are you doing? Like, you're not spending your time appropriately, right? You know, and then a very similar instance in the other two cases for where they live. So we really do try to focus on specifically on outcomes, right? And getting things done. Hey, if you're getting your stuff done, if the outcomes are there, then I don't really care how you're managing it. All of us have kids. And so we have like, we can like empathize with each other, right? On that, like you want to spend your evenings with your kids. You don't want to spend your evening on on work and stuff like that. You don't want to spend your weekends working. You want to spend it with your kids. I would say like before I had a kid, I would work a lot. And I don't know if I had the most empathy, but um, again, my partners, like they always were executing well. They get stuff done at a high level. You know, we were selling a deal the other week and Pooja, was up until like midnight or 2 a.m., like two nights in a row trying to get stuff done. And she didn't have to be. She could just be like, hey, like, it's okay. This will get delayed a little bit. But she was doing that because she's dedicated to the business. So I think it all just comes down to like having the right partners that you know they have 
their own personal responsibility. They have a high standards. They're just going to get shit done and you can kind of rely on them. And yeah, that's pretty much how I run the business. Haven't had, you know, any problems. And we do certain things. We'll implement things, right? We do a Monday partner meeting, go over the priorities for the week, how things are going, stuff like that. You know, two times a year max, maybe one time a year, we'll do 360 feedback. So we'll sit down. Two of us will sit down. We'll do what the other, the third partner's strengths are, their weaknesses, where they need to get better, things like that. And then we'll present it to that person. And we trust each other so we know that we can be very direct uh, with each other on what's what's going well, what's holding us back, where they need to improve. So we've put in those kinds of mechanisms to you know help us be a, a high-functioning team. That's awesome. I want to kind of ask you to compare all of the places that you've worked in your career, because I don't know too many people who have such a variety. Do, do I ever write that you, you're like, I don't know if it's your first job, but some early job, you, you worked at McDonald's? Yeah, that was my first job. Okay, first job at McDonald's, <laughs> then like GE, Facebook, starting your and now starting your own company. Like that is a massive sort of breadth of of experiences and things. Like, how do you how do you compare like the the pressures and the strains and the stress and the the work that you do now as an owner of your own business, but but be able to but in a very high leverage position versus sort of the workload or the stress or the strain of something that is like hectic but well organized like McDonald's or like super high pressure but open like Facebook you know I, just that's a very interesting sort of set of things to contrast and I imagine are, are easy and challenging in very different ways yeah definitely you know McDonald's was a very stressful job I was like so bad at the men at like doing the screen and you know people are like firing their order at you so quickly and I'm like, hey, yeah, my fingers don't move that fast. So you got to slow down. So, you know, I did a couple, like I worked at Max and Irma's, which was in uh, Michigan. I don't know like how many other places that is. And I was a carry out, you know, carry out boy. And they gave like, I worked there for one week and they gave like $250 in gift cards to people because I messed up so many orders. <laughs> and so I think working in food is just like not for me. I don't deal well with that, that type of speed. So, you know, that was uh, definitely interesting. It, those taught me though, like, hey, you got to take life seriously. Cause like, I don't want to work. I don't want to work here. So like, you got to, you know, when you go to college, you got to figure your shit out and you got to figure out how you can go work in a environment that you want to work at. You know, GE was good. I think when I first started, I remember like thinking to myself, like, okay, so I'm going to join as like an analyst and I'm going to be like advising the CFO on how to make investment decisions. Like, how do I know how to do that? And then my first day, you know, I realized like, oh no, you're just in Excel all day. And like, you know, doing these like data entry and improving these Excel processes processes and data gathering and stuff like that. But really GE did teach me kind of like how to grow up, you know, how to be an adult, how to communicate with all different levels of an organization, whether it's, you know, entry-level, mid-level managers. And then as I went on, executives, CEOs, boards, things like that. Um, so that was like a really, really good experience that I had early on to understand how do you really operate at a very high level, understand details of things, anticipate questions, discuss things with people that are like, you know, on like a world leader type level. So that was, uh, you know, a really good experience as well as be the person, like at some point, like be the person who's making decisions for people that are like 30 to 40 years older than you. 
like why should they respect your opinion so that was really good and you're going to facebook i remember when i went to go interview i went on the campus and i was like i told my wife like this is the disney world for adults i think because i remember walking in and like there's all these people that look like they're 20 years old like eating ice cream and i was like where like am personal i personal massager just walking behind them wherever <laughs> they go yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly so you know that was good that was a high pressure environment i would say it was probably a more open culture where you know ge where for most people really a ge you needed to like you know go through certain bureaucratic steps to like talk to someone maybe at facebook it was like oh no, like the GM of this business or whatever sits like three desks down for me so I can just go talk to them. But, you know, it was still very kind of like a professional organization. They moved really fast. It was like some of the smartest, very smart, some of the smartest people I've ever met. And then now at JT Capital, it was just like, you know, when we first started, it was like, we just have to make this thing work. You know, I did the fear setting exercise by Tim Ferriss. So that I think helped really prepare me. It was imagining worst cases scenarios and how you might mitigate them. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, exactly. Anyone who's thinking about, you know, who's listening, who's thinking about taking the leap or doing their own thing or something like that, do that or making a major life decision, do that exercise because that is uh, super impactful. And yeah, it's, it's just like a different kind of pressure now, right? Like now your name is on the line you're responsible for people's money you're responsible for your own money in a way that you haven't been before you don't get a paycheck every two weeks not how it works it's just been a you know the work is so much different like at facebook at ge whatever you're executing you're in the details of you know doing the work product and doing things versus now it's so much more like hey one decision or one action that you take for the year will have much more of an impact on everything else that you do in the year. Like if I look at, you know, the past few years, like two decisions I make each year are the ones that justify whether you're going to, you know, have a really good year or not a great year. And so that's pretty much, you know, what I take away from kind of each type of job. That's very interesting. Okay. A few um, closing questions for you, just to two here. And one is you've segued into beautifully. What was the single biggest inflection point of your career? So when I was uh, at Facebook and uh, there was a couple of things that happened that ultimately made me want to go start my own thing, but we had to put this financial model together, right? And we had put it together one year and we put it together in this way to show like the impact of what something would be. And that's what we did the previous year. This year I was like, hey, I found a quicker way to do it. And like, it's pretty much a, it gets us to like the same type of answer and uh, you know the logic is different but we're getting there and so i did that and you know my boss at the time was like i explained it to him walked him through it and he was like yeah that's great and everything but like we should just go do it back like the way we did before and i was like yeah but like i did that high level of the way we did before and i'm telling you like, it's the same answer and he's like and so you know we're going back and forth for a little bit and then he's like okay look like are you just gonna do it <laughs> and i was like Oh God. I was like, I really don't have a choice. I have to do this. And I remember we were like in a meeting, small meeting room. I remember walking back to my desk and being like, okay, fuck this. I'm out. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I got to go do my own thing. <laughs> and so that was probably the largest inflection point of my career where I was like, you know, that along with like seeing Facebook rank number one in HR 
or number one on Glassdoor for places to work. I was like, okay, like is this number one? Like where I can't work anywhere. <laughs> this is as else. good as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was probably the biggest inflection point where I was like, okay, I gotta, uh, I gotta go do my own thing, and I need to figure out what that is. Interesting. Was was there a single any single deal that like JT Capital hinged on, or that sort of enabled you to go and do your own thing? Or would, or was that opportunity really set up by you know th these years of sort of like being diligent about saving and giving yourself cushion and working and learning? Yeah, where where you you had a really long a longer period of time to, yeah. to make your own thing work. Yeah, I think it was over a longer period of time. Like it was the saving money. It was you know getting comfortable with kind of having enough cushion. Uh, my wife worked right, so like at least with her job, we could pay all our expenses right. So without her, I couldn't have done any of this because I would have had that cushion, but I don't know if I would have taken the leap not knowing at that time that like money is not coming in every week. Like now I'm totally comfortable with that because it's been happening for so long and you know, you just adjust to like, oh, okay, this is the way life works. You know, you get paid on, on mostly like carry, right? Carried interest from these deals and that's fine. But that time I don't know if my wife was not working, if that I would have taken that leap. Um, so it was really just kind of, you know, saving over time and um, being diligent about it. Interesting. Okay. Last question. Take your time. What is the mental model or heuristic that you use most frequently? And you, and multiple is also an, an interesting thing, but like the rules for decision-making or the rules of thumb that you reference most often, personally or mm -hmm. professionally. Yeah, I think there's three. I think about it like this. And this is a lens for like all decisions, probably relative to business, like life, so on and so forth. So the first is simplicity. So, you know, whenever I hear of an idea or someone doing something, you know, once like a lot of buzzwords start entering the conversation and a lot of complexity of like, we need to do this. And then if we get this right, it's going to lead to this. And then, you know, if we get that one right, then we're going to hit here. It's like, all right, you know, we're creating like a web of just like complexity here. Like, can we even get to the first thing? Because uh, <laughs> if so, like, I don't know if I want to be a part of this. So I think simplicity where, you know, that's one of the reasons I chose real estate, which is like you buy a building, people rent, they pay, they pay rent and you, know, you get cash flow. Like, okay, super simple. Even with like uh, any other, like, like I've really been interested in software recently even like these software businesses where it's like, hey, this is just like a huge problem in a specific type of vertical. We're just going to go solve this one problem. Okay, great. That makes total sense to me. Like super easy to get customers on that, so on and so forth. I think simplicity is one. Uh, the other one is compounding. So if you could tell me that, hey, we're going to start a business this year and it's going to make 2 million bucks but after that, like that's it's done. Like nothing else will come from that, right? Like we're gonna sell masks during COVID. We'll make two million dollars. I probably would not be interested in that because there's no type of compounding effect or no equity value or no enterprise value that can be created. And that one, you know, has come over time. Where in the beginning of starting a business or before starting the business, it's just like, hey, I just need to make money and make cash flow. But then over time, you realize like. You know that's fine, that's good, but what you need to be focusing on is increasing the enterprise value of your business, which is 
What is the revenue you're generating? How sustainable is that revenue? What are the unit economics of the business? And what is the total value of this company such that you know you could potentially sell this thing and you know get an exit based on a multiple of the cash flows that it's generating? And something that you know has a flywheel effect, so it continues to get stronger and better over time. That's what I'm you know most interested in when it comes to uh, doing things. Compounding as it relates to relationships, right? All I have to do is spend lots of quality time with my daughter and just be there for her, and we're going to have an amazing time. But like those relationships compound, you know, over the course of her life and and uh, my life, my wife's life. Um, and then lastly, it's return on hassle. So whenever I do something, what is the amount of like work that I need to do to go get this thing? Again, like if you told me that hey, we can make ten million dollars this year. But we're working seven days a week for a year. You know, you can't really, you can't really see your family. Maybe you can see them for like dinner, like a couple times a week or something like that. Besides that, like we're going all in and uh, we're going to make 10 million bucks. I'd be like, yeah, not interesting to me because like we're going to have to put in so much work and effort. I can't do the things that matter most to me. That's like a lot of hassle and a lot of just unnecessary burden that I don't want. So I think those are the three mental models that probably I use on a day-to-day basis, evaluating opportunities, thinking about how I'm spending my time, thinking about um, you know, the relationships that I have and stuff like that. It's awesome. Simplicity, compounding, return on hassle. It sounds like the recipe for a very, very good life. I appreciate you sharing those with us and taking the time. And it's great to, great to talk more. I, 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 40 seconds into hanging with you at Capital Camp, I was like, oh yes, 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 yes. We have a lot to get into. <laughs> I have a lot to learn from this dude. And I thought I knew it'd be fun to have you on here and I'd learn a lot doing it. So thank you for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me, for, for having me. I'm a big fan of, you know, your podcast. I love the book you've written and I'm looking forward to, you know, everything that you're going to keep writing and doing in the future. Thanks. I, I hope it, uh, hope it lives up. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it helps you build, accumulate even more Austin real estate. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I come up with some money to to put into it. It seems so obvious, you know, 10 years ago what Austin was going to become. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you're in the right place at the right time with a big catcher's mitt to uh, get some of that growth. It's, a, it's an exciting frontier. Yeah. Yeah. Austin is great. The, cr- the growth has been crazy. Yeah. Right. Right place, man. You're in the right place. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you will also love my episodes uh, with Chris Powers of Fort Capital. Chris is maybe a decade ahead of Rohan in his uh, building of this real estate empire. So if you like this, definitely check that episode out. Further into the real estate world, Natalia Karianeva is the CEO and founder of Proppy, which is bringing real estate onto the blockchain. And we talk a lot about the tech real estate intersection in that episode. Also, Thomas Smale, the founder of FE International. A business brokerage. We talk a lot about buying valuations around cash flowing internet businesses. So definitely some parallels to what Rohan and I talked about here today. Uh, once more, if you're interested in supporting the show, check out athenago.com or, or you can invest with me and my partners with Rolling Fun. Links to both are in the show notes. And for a free way to support the show, please leave a quick review or text this episode to a friend or coworker you think would enjoy it. If you know anybody who works at Facebook or similar and isn't that happy with their job, this might be a good one to send them. Let's see if Rohan can inspire them to change their life story. Thank you for listening. Have a good one. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. 
This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself, breathe deep, and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.